What is empathy? Why have we lost so much of it? And how can we get it back? Let's talk all about empathy with author Jamil Zaki right here on episode 241 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm so grateful you're here, whether it's your first time tuning in or you've been hanging out with me here on the virtual airwaves for months or years. Thank you for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is, as always, all about you and your nursing career, and I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, and beyond. And did you know you can leave a rating and review for The Nurse Keith Show? That's right. Head over to iTunes and Apple Podcasts. It can really help other people find the show when you rate the show, write a review, and let me know you did so, so I can read your review and thank you on air. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Carson Newman, a university offering a full slate of 100% online nursing degree programs to meet your educational needs. Carson Newman offers the following online degrees, RN to BSN, RN to MSN FNP, MSN FNP, and a Postmaster's FNP certificate. With stress-free clinical placements and unrivaled student support, their CCNE accredited online courses are designed for busy nurses like you and feature no mandatory login times. And remember, your internships and your work in the clinical space are not online. They happen in person, and Carson Newman will help you get that all set up. Please visit them at onlinenursing.cn.edu. That's onlinenursing.cn.edu. And I thank Carson Newman for their generous support. Meanwhile, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, head on over to nursekeith.com forward slash episode 241. And as I mentioned earlier, we are here with Jamil Zaki, the author of The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. Thanks for being here, Jamil. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And first, let's jump right in. And why, as a society, have we lost so much ground when it comes to empathy in the 21st century? Well, first, let's let's establish that we have lost ground okay. uh, with empathy, which which I think a lot of us intuitively believe. I certainly, you know, even though I've been studying empathy um, as a researcher for 15 years, just as a person, noticed that it seemed to be fading. But it turns out that there is corroborating evidence for this, uh, for better and for worse. So the most common way to measure empathy is just a questionnaire. Um, it's a series of statements, and people rate from one to five how well those statements describe them. So it could be th- something like, um, I have tender, concerned feelings for people less fortunate than myself, mm-hmm. or I try to look at everyone's side of a disagreement before I make a decision. Right? These are just sort of tapping into people's perceptions that they themselves are empathic. You answer each question on a scale from one to five, and there are 28 of these questions, and together they give you an empathy score, again, from one to five. And researchers have asked these questions of tens of thousands of people over the last 40 years. And recently, psychologists decided to aggregate, put together all this information to look at trends over time. And Keith, the news was not good. <laughs> it turns out that it turns out that the average American in 1979 scored somewhere around a four on a five-point scale of empathy. So not bad. Um, I'd give that a solid B. And then the average American 
in 2009 scored at around a three. So a, a, a precipitous drop, a really significant one. And to put it in perspective, the average American in 2009, less empathic than 75% of people just 30 years before. So this is a really steep decline in empathy across our society that has accelerated. A lot of this decline, these psychologists found, uh, started in the 21st century. Wow. And Jamil, I just want to point out to any listener out there who is tuning in and is really interested in your work that you have a new book out called The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. It came out this year. It is published by Crown, which is a division of Random House Penguin or Penguin Random House. And it is a fantastic book. I've been pouring through it and I showed you how I have so many post-its in it because <laughs> I have underlined and highlighted and folded so many passages and folded pages that it is incredibly dog-eared already, and I've only had it for a month. So just wait. Check me in five years. This book is going to look like it's been through the mill. But anyway, uh, just saying. So you wrote this book, it seems to me, based on your TED Talk and other things I've heard and read, that you had a story to tell, one, about your child, and that relates to healthcare specifically, and my audience will relate to that. And it sounds like you have somewhat of a mission to change this calculus that we see around empathy. So was this situation with your child the spark, or was there something else that precipitated you to diving into this 15 years ago? Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, so I, I started studying empathy. They say in psychology that research is me-search, meaning that people often study things that matter to them mm -hmm. personally. And, you know, I, I think I started studying empathy um, not just because of, uh, uh, not because of my, uh, you know, my children, but because of my childhood, actually, my my parents and the way that I grew up, which was in a house where people came from different cultures, both my parents immigrants from very different places who had a long and bitter divorce. And as their only child, I kind of was the broker between their different worlds. And I think the ability for me, it was a survival skill to connect with two very different people it just made me innately curious about how people connect with each other. And I think, and that was before I even knew what the word empathy meant. Hmm. So once I sort of started studying neuroscience and psychology and learned that this was a thing that I could try to understand more deeply through the scientific method, I was hooked. Um, and so I'd been studying empathy for you know, I, my entire career, basically, in various forms. I'm happy to talk about any of those that that you think are relevant. But you know, the the impetus for the book actually started more around the time, as you say, that that um, my wife and I, that our first daughter was born. Um, this is about three and a half, almost four years ago, and it it came because you know I, I think I'd I'd thought about writing a book for a long time, but there were there are a ton of books on empathy, and I guess. What brought me to this was the feeling that even though as a researcher I was studying empathy and learning about all of its benefits and the way that it helps us and helps the people around us, as a person I was noticing what we just started with, which is that empathy seems to be eroding in our culture. And I felt like, gosh, this is a really dangerous trend and if we keep on going this way, we'll be in huge trouble. And then having a kid, I thought, God, I don't want to 
I don't want my daughter to grow up in a world that's becoming ever more callous and cruel and disconnected. Mm-hmm. I also knew through my work that empathy is not a trait. It's more like a skill. And so I knew that you know, one of the things that maybe I could contribute would be to empower people to understand that even if they feel like it's hard to empathize at certain moments, maybe on the internet or with somebody who they disagree with or in a healthcare context because they're inundated with other people's pain, that there are things that we can do to tweak our empathy, to empathize more effectively in healthier and broader ways. And so, That's when, I guess, sort of seeing this crisis of empathy in our culture, feeling like maybe the work that I've been doing and my colleagues have been doing could help people manage that crisis and thinking, well, and I I want that, I want a world where people are doing better with their empathy. I want that for for all of us and, and certainly for my kids. I guess those pieces really inspired me to start working on the book. That's fantastic. And when you talk about an empathy deficit in this, we're in somewhat of a we could call it a crisis, a cultural crisis here in the United States and abroad too. I think there's, there's correlations between that, let's say in the crisis we feel around climate change, you know, there's, there are forces at work in the world that are impacting the way we live, the way we look at the future, the way we see the future of our children. So there's some high stakes stuff going on in the world right now. And on one of my favorite podcasts, hidden brain, published by NPR with Shankar Vedantam, the wonderful host, you said that empathy is like a muscle and that you can strengthen it with exercise. It can atrophy when it's idling, when you're not actually practicing it. And on Hidden Brain, you talked about how you can calibrate your empathy so you can be more mindful when you're interacting with other people. And circling back to the story of your daughter, What was it that happened? And you can tell, you know, whatever form of the story you want to tell. What happened in that hospital when you were viewing the caregivers, the nurses, the doctors, and how you were treated and how your daughter was treated during this difficult passage? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm happy to talk about this. And obviously, I talk a lot about it in in the book. Uh, You know, so our first daughter, Alma, um, again, born about three and a half years ago at UCSF Benioff. And um, she had a traumatic birth and um, and she was doing very poorly when she um, when she was first newborn. And, you know, um, they you know, we didn't know what was wrong with her, but it was obvious that something was wrong. Um, and, you know, she was having seizures in the first day of her life. Um, she had some skull fractures and um, and we learned uh, we learned later, a few days later, that she had suffered a stroke during her birth. Um, I want to be really clear that she's doing great now. I mean, it's incredible that, you. you know, the, uh, the, the, the brain of newborn children is so plastic and so adaptable. I mean, it really is a, it's a, it's a miracle of neuroplasticity, the way that kids bounce back from strokes, especially newborns. In fact, I've done a lot of research on that ever since. I, I, I say, I often say I've never been more grateful to have training in neuroscience than when, um, we found out about, about her stroke because, mm reading the literature, you actually get a lot of optimism because, again, 
children's brains just bounce back so they're so elastic and anyways long story short alma is now completely a well child in the eyes of her neurologist but at that but but we didn't know that that's where we were headed um of course in that time so she spent the first weeks of her life in the intensive care nursery at ucsf and you know it was the hardest time of my family's life by far and i remember just how much of a sense of loss and fear and lack of control we had and the one silver lining to that was the staff at the ICN the doctors and nurses and technicians and I mean all around us the folks working there were the kindest most empathic healthcare professionals I've ever interacted with Mm. they helped us feel as though we could make it through this time. Um, I, I, I often, I honestly feel as though we owe a lot of the, a lot of our sanity to them. And so, you know, I, I was so so grateful to them. You know, even as an empathy expert, I had never really received empathy from strangers the way that I did from those folks. And and at the same time, I kind of started to worry about them. I thought, how can they possibly manage this level of suffering? across so many families, so many tiny children, mm-hmm. and then go home to their own families and then come back and do it again. So I became really interested in how they manage their empathy. And uh, about 18 months after Alma was born, I went back to the ICN um, to do reporting for this book. And I shadowed the staff there for uh, for about a week and learned as much as I could about their experiences. And then in the book, I try to tie that to um, the science of empathy in, in, in healthcare professionals and the general idea of empathy as it pertains to burnout, compassion fatigue, and secondary trauma, which I'm sure you know, many of your listeners are familiar with. Oh my um, gosh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more than they would care to be. Now, that's, I love that reflection about the nurses, the doctors, and what, and then you started thinking empathically, like, how do they do this? What, how do they sleep at night? How do they go home and just eat dinner when they've witnessed such trauma? And you've, you wrote that in your book that caregivers who think their job is to defy mortality are doomed to fail themselves and their patients. And by defying mortality, I think what you were trying to say, and I'm taking this out of context, of course, is that we need to realize that sometimes it's not our job to save someone. It's our job to provide them comfort, love, empathy, um, caring, the fact that they feel seen and heard. So is there anything you'd like to say about that aspect, either from the book, from your experience as a father, or from your research? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so someone who I would um, point your listeners to if they want to learn more about this perspective is Anthony Bach, who's a, just a brilliant, he's an oncologist and palliative care provider and has done a lot of work around sort of the internal struggles of healthcare professionals. And one of the things that he points to is that really in the Western medical tradition, we often see healthcare professionals, you know, nurses and physicians and so forth as like our chosen champions in the battle against sickness, against death, right? But that's a battle that we, unfortunately, well, just 
that we will all simply lose. And, and, you know, I think that there are so many sources of burnout and compassion fatigue in, in healthcare. And I don't want to sound like I'm the expert here. You and your listeners know so much more about this than I do. So let me stipulate that on the front end. But, but one of the things that Tony talks a lot about is that, is that if we sort of place ourselves between human humanity and death, then we will lose and we will feel as though we failed the people who we're trying to help. But there's, but, but the mission of caring professionals as he thinks of it shouldn't be to stop people from dying. Cause again, we'll always fail that, but rather to, um, to help as you as you put it beautifully, to help Patients feel as though they're cared for, they're heard, they're seen, and that somebody is there with them. And there's all sorts of evidence that that simple feeling, what psychologists in therapy call therapeutic alliance, Mm -hmm. matters enormously to patients, irrespective of the outcome of care. It does indeed. You're so right. And one of the emblematic aspects of some of these things around death and we could talk about death forever and we we have to go back to empathy but around death the majority of people who could benefit from hospice care enter hospice too late they could be on hospice for months or years but they're generally on it for days hours or maybe a few weeks and i think part of it is because families sometimes patients and also the medical professionals don't want to admit defeat and they feel like referring someone to hospice is defeat because we're saying we can't really cure this and we're just going to make you comfortable and just comfortable is a misnomer because making someone comfortable and feel safe even if they're in the dying process is an incredibly empathic process Oh, uh, in, in, uh, I completely agree with that. And, you know, again, Tony talks about this a whole lot. But I mean, I think that there, there's a there's one risk of, you know, of, of that healthcare professionals face is this sort of desire for heroism, you know, yes. to engage in heroic measures that oftentimes cause a lot of pain and suffering, but just give families that sliver of hope and families too are and patients themselves often want that and and it feels empathic to give it to them but it might at a deeper level not be as empathic right i mean sometimes the hardest thing to do is to be clear with a patient you know and this there's all sorts of research on this as well around medical communication but oftentimes physicians and healthcare professionals don't deliver diagnoses in the in as plain a term in plain terms that they should you know just saying i'm sorry but th- this treatment is not is highly unlikely to work instead you know sometimes it, it's tempting because of our because of one type of empathy because you want to avoid pain to sort of sugarcoat diagnoses and not allow patients to really understand their prognoses, right? but the more deeply empathic thing to do is to be clear in our communication and then, as you put it really well, offer that sense of, of care and comfort and psychological safety as patients transition into understanding where they're headed. Exactly, exactly. And I've written, podcasted, spoken on the stage about something I call nurse martyr syndrome. And this is where I believe nurses feel 
They have to deny their own needs. They have to go above and beyond. They have to do everything in their power to save people, to make people better. And this can involve empathy, of course, but it can also involve mm, somewhat unrealistic feelings about what you can actually accomplish as a medical professional and not wanting to face, quote unquote, defeat. And I feel like this sort of martyr syndrome, this desire to be a hero. And there's different types of heroics, of course, but this type of hero that I'm going to save everyone and no one's going to suffer, no one's going to die. This leads to empathy, compassion, fatigue, burnout. And my friend Carol Gino, the nurse author, very well-known writer, she calls compassion fatigue soul drought. She says Oof. it's when when the soul has just been drained of all I know you just reacted to that term. Yeah. The soul's been drained of of all powers of of being present and feeling fulfilled that it's just the soul drought that says it all that that the the water's been let out of the empathy reservoir. And what a power what what a powerful description and resonates with a lot of the oh, yeah. um reporting that I've done as well. I remember talking with um a social worker who worked with um, children and adolescents who had um, who had been abused, you know, so these are awful cases, and mm. she she actually started to feel um, that any time that she enjoyed her life, in any way, mm-hmm. even when she wasn't working, that she was betraying her patients. She oh. kind of felt how can how can I enjoy anything when these people are suffering so much? I should be helping them right now, right. and. And again, that that strikes me as resonant with your very uh, powerful description of martyrdom. And I think that that is, you know, it, it's it's a it's a it, it's a tempting way to feel. It's a very it's a very altruistic and heroic imagination around what somebody's mission is in their life. It's very admirable, but it's also very dangerous and unsustainable. You know, so one of the things that I write about is that, you know, nurses and physicians, healthcare professionals, when they start their training are more empathic uh, using some of the same measures that we've talked about than uh, people who are entering other professions. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. I think that we go into helping you know, professions that are oriented around helping because we want to help. And maybe that's driven by a preternatural sort of care for others. Sure. But interestingly, later, so for instance, for physicians after their third year of medical school and for and like the same goes for for nurses who are practicing, their empathy actually oftentimes is lower than the average person. So there's an we've talked about empathy decline culturally over the course of decades, but healthcare professionals often experience a much faster empathy decline through their career. Now, why would that be? Well, one idea is that is that healthcare professionals have this feeling that if I empathize, it must mean that I martyr myself that I sacrifice myself, that I suffer just as much as all of my patients all the time. But that, of course, is a grinding process that will dry out your soul in that beautiful and stirring and, de- and sad description. Yes. And and so I feel as though, and again, I, I cede expertise on this to, uh, the, to the lived experience of you and your listeners. But one thing that it strikes me that, that healthcare professionals might face is at some point the feeling of a double bind. Mm-hmm. I can either continue feeling every iota of pain that everyone around me is feeling, but then I'm going to burn out and lose my life. 
or I can shut down my empathy almost purposefully and and sort of decide that I need to get on with my life and so I need to stop connecting with the people who I'm I'm treating and and this is what in psychology people call defensive dehumanization. Ooh. That's <laughs> the idea ooh. the the, <laughs> the idea that we stop seeing others as people so that we can continue being people. Right. So you see this in you know there's there's one study that came out probably about 10 years ago where um a psychologist measured the extent to which healthcare professionals were dehumanizing their patients sort of saying, you know, so basically treating them like more like bodies and like like a nuisance right. than like a full person. Exactly. And what they found was that physicians who engaged in more dehumanization were also less burnt out, which is a little bit difficult to process, right? It's almost as though this thing that is harmful to patients, dehumanizing them, is also pr- is sort of a, a self-protection mechanism. Ooh, that sounds like a zero-sum game to me. It does, right? I mean, because patients, and again, we can talk about this all day, there's <laughs> just reams of evidence that patients benefit when their nurses and physicians treat them with empathy. Mm. But then also evidence that empathy can be an occupational hazard for the people who are providing that care, which again, as you put it exactly, feels like a zero-sum game. Now, I have good news. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, it, Thank you. It's not, <laughs> it's not actually a zero-sum game. I was about to cry. I know. It's not actually a zero-sum game, and, and understanding how it's not zero-sum requires a, a little bit of a dive into the definition of empathy. So, Empathy, the way that I talk about empathy is that it's actually more than one thing. So um, I, I use this example. Imagine that you're um, having lunch with a friend and he gets a phone call and you don't know what the other person what the person on the other line says, but you can tell that it's not good. Your friend starts to cry and he's very upset. Well, a few things could happen in you. One, you could become upset yourself, vicariously taking on his feelings. That's what we call emotional empathy. Mm. Two, you might try to figure out what he's feeling and why. And that's what we call cognitive empathy. And three, if you're a good friend at least, you probably care about what he's going through and have a wish for him to feel better. And that's called empathic concern. So the trick or one of the most important things that I think people should understand in preventing compassion fatigue while still providing empathic care is how to tune between those types of empathy, which we can talk about after the break. Wonderful. Wow. I love that. We are going to talk more about that. So when we come back from the break, we are going to talk about those three types of empathy. I also want to mention a film that I highly recommend you watch, Jamil, and any listener out there who would like to tune into this film that really shows us how this lack of empathy or presence of empathy in healthcare can really move the needle. And we're going to talk more about healthcare, post-traumatic growth, post-traumatic stress, and some other issues that come up in the course of your book. So we will be right back for the second half of The Nurse Keith Show, episode 241. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Carson Newman University, offering a full suite of 100% online nursing degree programs, not including clinicals or residencies, of course. And those programs include RN to BSN, RN to MSN FNP, 
MSN FNP and a Postmaster's FNP certificate. With stress-free clinical placements and unrivaled student support, their CCNE accredited online courses are designed for busy nurses like you and feature no mandatory class login times. Please visit them at onlinenursing.cn.edu. I thank Carson Newman University for their generous support. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners like you who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So let's dig right back into today's topic. Hey, well, thanks for hanging out here on the Nurse Keith Show. We are indeed episode 241, and we're here with Jamil Zaki, a incredible author from Stanford University, talking about his book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. And Jamil, right before the break, we were talking about these three types of empathy, cognitive and the other two... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, emotional empathy when you vicariously catch other people's feelings oh yes um cognitive empathy when you think about what they're feeling and why and empathic concern Mm. a motivation to improve how other people feel okay so these parts of empathy often feel like they're different sides of the same coin. I mean, of course, if you catch someone's feelings, you'll probably also be motivated to help them. But it turns out that they're surprisingly dissociable, meaning they split apart um, in ways that we might not expect. So, for instance, um, the, all three of these components of empathy are correlated with activity in different parts of the brain, um, suggesting that they're biologically separable. Um, Different people struggle with different types of empathy. So, for instance, people with autism struggle sometimes with cognitive empathy. They have trouble understanding what other people feel, but they don't have trouble with emotional empathy or empathic concern. By contrast, people with psychopathy are like the mirror opposite of that. They are perfectly able to understand what other people feel, but they don't necessarily share that emotion or care very much about what other people are going through. And there's a really important way of translating that split into the lives of healthcare professionals because it turns out that emotional empathy is a risk factor for burnout, compassion fatigue, and secondary trauma. But empathic concern is a protective factor that buffers healthcare professionals against those same problems. Mm. So it turns out that, that it's not just that empathizing leads us to burnout. It's that the way that we empathize can either lead us to burn out or protect us from doing so. Oh, see, I burned out a bunch of years ago and my wife had to just basically pull me out of a particular job because I had gone too deep into my empath and my, my emotional empathy for my patients who were quite debilitated, poor, um, um, not looked upon well by society and also by the healthcare system. And I totally burned out and I couldn't be home having fun because I felt so guilty. And that was a sure sign of burnout because I just couldn't, I became anhedonic 
in my life yeah. outside of work. So I totally relate. And I bet there's someone listening right now who's nodding their head or shaking their head or crying because they realize this is them. Well, and it's a lot of us. I mean, I, I too am sort of naturally tuned to have a lot of emotional empathy. I mean, it turns out in a past life, I thought that I would become a therapist. I always loved talking with people and trying to help them with their problems. But mm. as I started thinking more about it, I realized, man, I am so – I would catch people's feelings and they would just – it would ruin me to do this. But it turns out that we don't have to just give up if we feel like, oh, I'm just made of emotional empathy, so I'm, I'm bound to burn out. Right. As I said earlier, empathy is a skill that we can, and, and you said it nicely, it's sort of like a muscle that you can work on. But I want to put it a little bit more, even, I want to complicate that a little bit more. So Shankar and Hidden Brain actually came up with this analogy. He's like, it's actually like a group of different muscle sets that work at different times and that we can work out in different ways. And so one of the things that I think um, often troubles healthcare professionals, but really anybody who's inundated with other people's suffering. So that includes people, for instance, who care for a loved one who has a chronic illness or people who tune into the news, right? I mean, Twitter now can can offer us its own form of uh, compassion or empathy fatigue. Absolutely. Right? So, so one problem that I think arises is when people confuse empathy for emotional empathy. Mm. They think that their only choice is to either share what other people are feeling, and that's empathizing, or to just shut off their empathy altogether. And it turns out that one of the insights that I think is most relevant to healthcare professionals is that that's not actually true. You can train not just to become more or less empathic. You can train to tune your empathy almost towards one type or another. So in this case, a very wise thing for healthcare professionals to do, in my opinion, is to tune themselves to the extent that they can away from emotional empathy, just catching everyone's suffering, and towards empathic concern, a sense that I don't have to feel as somebody does in order to feel for them Ooh. and in order to want to help them. Yes, that's wonderful. And that brings up this issue of sympathy, which is a very different experience, isn't it? Sympathy is a really complicated term because it, it's changed in its definition over the years. Okay. I, I, I won't go, I don't want to get too far no. in the weeds, right. but um, sympathy, it turns out, was the word before, empathy has only been a word since 1909. Oh. And prior to that, yeah, um, there's a long history that's probably not as interesting for your listeners, okay. but, um, but, but before empathy was a word sympathy was the term for emotional empathy um, oh. and 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 then empathy supplanted it in the lexicon and so sympathy started to mean something quite different which is like a distant form of mm -hmm. almost pity yeah. um, oh it, i'm so sorry it, that person died you know exactly yeah. exactly yeah. and empathic concern is sort of somewhere in between those it's not a distant form of pity it is an, a, a a deeply emotional state but it's it's a state that has that's imbued with a motivation mm -hmm. and a desire and a hope for suffering to be relieved oh. and again let, let's be clear that that doesn't mean to cure a patient right no there, there's you can feel a lot of empathic concern and improve someone's well-being a lot through palliative care for instance right mm -hmm. and so it's really just about wishing 
well-being to somebody else. Oh, you see, that's why you go to the store to buy a sympathy card when someone's <laughs> died, and you're like, wait, this should be an empathy card. <laughs> I'm I'm not sending I you love my that. sympathy. I'm sending you my my empathy so interesting well we'll have to call hallmark and talk all about that and see if we can <laughs> move the needle on that um one thing around healthcare i wanted to mention before the break i mentioned a film and i've mentioned this film on this show before and there might be a listener out there saying okay okay i'll watch it already but it's a film called wit w-i-t with emma thompson have you ever seen it I've not. Oh gosh, you got to get it. So it was a play. And so the film is set up a lot like a play. There's really only one scene or two scenes in the entire film. It's basically this woman who's a very erudite, um, somewhat arrogant professor of very complex philosophy. She studies John Locke and she has uh, cancer that can't be cured. And the oncologist has decided to use her as a guinea pig for something he wants to get past as a new treatment, but he knows it's going to kill her, but he doesn't tell her, nor does any of his residents or interns. And they all treat her as if she's just a piece of meat. And the only person who shows true empathy for her is drum roll, please the nurse. So mm -hmm. it's a very, very interesting illustration of how medicine can go in one direction or the other and how we're often have this push and pull. So for someone out there listening who has seen that sort of situation occur right before their eyes this is real so i definitely recommend wit with emma thompson and i want to move on a little bit you had talked about altruism born of suffering and that's on page 20 of the book and you wrote about how after katrina hurricane katrina in in louisiana the cajun navy which are all these uh what would you say um lay people with boats mm -hmm. took right. their boats to Houston to help rescue people um, for the next storm that came through Houston. Hurricane, Har Hurricane Harvey. Hurricane Harvey yes. right after Katrina. And you call this, and scientists call this, the altruism born of suffering. So I guess for a nurse out there who maybe has had cancer herself or who nursed her mom through cancer or ALS or something, she brings something different to the table than someone who maybe hasn't had that life experience. Is that true? I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's lots of cases of people who suffer in particular ways, for instance, who, um, who are, have been victims of assault or, um, or suffer a particular illness, right, or live through a disaster or war um, or suffer from, uh, from substance abuse issues that actually those experiences, although they're devastating traumas, actually change those people's lives because they decide to become helpers, right? Yes. They become they become assault counselors or addiction counselors. They change their lives because they're exposed to a type of suffering. And again, this kind of gets back a little bit to the distinction between sort of empathic distress and empathic concern, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they, it, it, you know, they, they, because of the pain that they've gone through, they, it, it, there's born in them a desire to help other people who are going through that same thing. It's almost as though they're, uh, they have a new antenna that pops up in <laughs> their emotional, in their emotional life that's tuned to the frequencies of other people who are suffering 
the way that they have. And it's a powerful force for, um, for kindness. Well said, well said. And you've said that it's like a group of muscles that can be developed. And I've spoken and written a lot about emotional and relational and behavioral intelligence, which also can be developed. They are not set in stone, nor is your, in, in, your IQ set in stone. Your IQ can actually be raised. It's been shown in research. So, you know, taking all this into consideration, there's so much to talk about. And before we begin to wrap up, I'd love for you to read a passage of your choosing from the book so that any listener out there can have this experience of you actually speaking from this incredible book I'm holding in my hand. Well, thank you. And if I could just take one minute before yes. doing that, I, I, I imagine that there might be listeners out there who are saying, well, great. So I, I should try to toggle away from emotional empathies a little bit and towards empathic concern. How do I do that? Mm -hmm. right? And I do want to um, just call out that in, in the book, I described this too, but there, there are a lot of people working on contemplative practices. So sort of meditation practices that allow um, healthcare professionals to work at that. And one of them is my very good friend and colleague, Eve Ekman, um, who, who I write about in the book. And, but the, the, if there are listeners out there who are wondering practically, how do I apply this type of idea to my, to my work? Um, I would, I would commend them to check out Eve Ekman and her contempl and, and work in contemplative Great. traditions. And is that E-C-K-M-A-N? Uh, E-K-M-A-N. Okay, we will put that in the show notes along with Anthony Bach and a lot of other links and things we're talking about here. Perfect. Um, so I'll read about a page of the book, um, again, about, um, about Alma's birth, if you don't mind. Wonderful, please. Okay. The day my daughter Alma was born was one of the best of my life. It was also the worst. After a long and difficult labor, Alma entered the world in a Benioff operating room just before 2 a.m., my wife and I listened for her cries, but the room was silent. The doctors' and nurses' faces were shot through with concern. Alma struggled to live. We later learned that during birth, she had suffered a stroke. She was rushed to Benioff's Intensive Care Nursery, or ICN, where she lay shell-shocked under a heat lamp. In Alma's early moments, I learned two things. First, I wanted to protect her more than I'd ever wanted anything. Second, I had already failed. A parade of medical staff visited us at Alma's bedside. They came at 5 a.m., at noon, at midnight, sometimes for a minute, sometimes for 20, usually without warning, always with news. Signs of infection had dissipated, but the inflammation under her skull had not. Her seizures were not life-threatening, but they might continue for years. The doctors merely translated Alma's charts, but it felt to us though, as though they had power over what was in them. After a punishing set of results, we'd wish for their mercy. What the ICN staff did control, though, was how they treated us. They answered all our questions and sat with our worries. After delivering some bad news, one doctor spent a dark early morning hour talking with me about fatherhood. Our real lifeline was Liz Rogers, Alma's neonatologist and the unit's associate medical director. Rogers' hair is a mosaic, chestnut streaked with gray in some places and highlighted blonde in others. Her face is a mosaic too. While she talked about Alma, she smiled, but her eyes seemed sad, searching ours. She hugged my wife and me every time she entered Alma's room. She cried with us and talked about her own children. 
I've studied empathy for years, but have rarely received it in such a profound way. These doctors, nurses, and technicians were strangers, yet they became the closest people to us at the hardest moment in our lives. They've done the same for countless others. The ICN specializes in treating vastly premature children born at a knife's edge between life and death. Some are so delicate that raising their legs could cause their brain to bleed. Families here face a fear that most parents cannot imagine. If sadness were light, you could see the ICN from space. Each day, Liz and the doctors, nurses, and staff here witness and work against this misery. Then they go home to their own families and act as though everything is fine and return the next day ready to give again. They're like empathic superheroes. But what does their care cost? Can they possibly sustain this rhythm? And if so, for how long? That is an incredible passage. And I'm sure there's someone out there listening who feels so seen by you right now. I've known nurses who work in pediatric oncology, who work in all sorts of really incredibly difficult circumstances. And you just humanized in a very empathic way, may I say, um, <laughs> the experience of those healthcare professionals. And your, your, your statement, if sadness were a light, you could see the ICN from space, says so much. I mean, that is a stunning metaphor. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with us. And hearing you read from the book is wonderful. And I can't wait to hear the audio book because I want to hear you read the whole thing. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and, and I did. I, I read it myself and it was, I have to say, you know, that passage, um, I've read it a, a dozen times out loud and it still stirs up those emotions in me, you know, both the difficulty of that time um, in our life and also just the gratitude um, that I feel uh, towards those wonderful um, nurses and, and physicians. And I, and I guess I want to say that um, to your listeners, just thank you for the work that, that you all do. Oh. It's, it's, it's really, it's so powerful and it means so much to so many people. That's very kind. Thank you so much, Jamil. So as we start to wind down, which I don't want to do, but time is of the <laughs> essence. We both have things to move on to, as do those who are listening. You talk in the book about post-traumatic stress, of course, PTSD, and many of us healthcare providers have it, including myself, I'll say. But you also talk about post-traumatic growth and that you can feel the positive effects of post-traumatic growth for years. So what is it that's happening for us to experience post-traumatic growth rather than stress? Yeah, I, I think of trauma like an earthquake in our lives, right? And that sometimes brings down the structures that we've placed around ourselves or that we've built up over time. And, you know, there's so much loss and I do not ever want to diminish the, um, the devastating effects of PTSD. But it turns out that almost as common as PTSD and sometimes happening together with it is post-traumatic growth. Right? Sometimes when old structures are shaken down to their foundation, we, re we can rebuild. And sometimes the way that we rebuild is, is, is better than what was there before. And, you know, so lots of people find the experience of trauma to be a wake-up call to sort of that, to, that brings them closer to what means the most to them mm. um, and, and, and sort of empowers them to say, well, shoot – 
life is not promised. You know, it can end at any time. Anything can happen. And so that that can sometimes for a deeper appreciation in people, deeper spirituality, a deeper connection to others, and a deeper affirmation of one's values. And the kind of the altruism born of suffering and an increase in empathy um, that occurs sometimes through suffering is one flavor of post-traumatic growth. Mm. So if there's a nurse out there listening right now who thinks, wow, I've been through the ringer. However, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and I can see where I've become stronger based on all of these traumatic experiences. This is speaking directly to her, isn't it? I hope so. I, I hope, hope so, so too. And one of my concerns, and this is probably a a rhetorical question, maybe, um, <laughs> but you know, healthcare institutions have a responsibility to their patients, right? Do no harm, hire the right people, make sure people live so they can be discharged, etc. So, but our healthcare institutions often are missing the people part of this. And I often talk about the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profits. We can look mm. at profits, which of course a, a hospital needs to make money or it's going to close. But we also have to look at the impact on the planet, you know, our practices that impact the planet around us that supports us and gives us life. And then we also have to think about people, patients and staff. So the rhetorical question here, which maybe we can't answer right now is what can healthcare institutions do about the empathy deficit and to increase post-traumatic growth in their staff, decrease post-traumatic stress and help people develop empathic concern and maybe decrease the muscle of emotional empathy, which will lead to burnout. So anyway, putting yeah, out this big uh, idea. No, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I love, I love the way that you set that question up and, and I've been thinking a lot about it. In fact, um, Liz Rogers, the person I was just reading about, uh, and I are having lunch today. We're doing grand rounds at UCSF um, next month to talk about these questions. And oh. you know, I think that one sort of piece of bad news is that I think that the way that healthcare is moving structurally is the wrong direction for empathy, right? With shorter and and more numerous visits, uh, you know, and and just sort of this sense of overwhelm uh, that 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 a lot of healthcare professionals are feeling more. And burnout is on the rise, not on the decline, right. which I'm sure might not surprise many of your listeners. But I, I think that you know, so it's easy to say give give people fewer patients and more time with them. That that's a structural thing. Um, but that that's hard to implement. Uh, but I, I do think that that one thing that I hope comes of this, one thing that I would love to see is to have part of you know nursing and medical training focus on or more of that training focus on people's ability to work internally with their own emotions mm. and and you know maybe the application of contemplative practices, maybe the application of of insights from psychology, you know, something, either a type of, or maybe this is an and, not an or, but having more of that during training, and then also having places that physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals can go to during their, while they're delivering care. So could there be breaks that are for mindfulness and sort of contemplative practice? Um, could there be resources for people to share their empathic experiences with each other. I think there, you know, in the book I write about programs like this, but they're all too rare. 
I feel as though oftentimes um, nurses and other healthcare professionals are left to deal with their own emotions kind of in the margins. True. And I would love to see that structurally supported um, to be part of the workplace, not something that um, that 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 healthcare professionals are just kind of left on their own to do. Yes, I would like to see that too. I think my friend Renee, Dr. Renee Thompson at the Healthy Workforce Institute is doing that work, um, eradicating bullying and incivility from healthcare. And you may or may not know that bullying between nurses is actually quite quite a um, scourge on our profession. So that's a whole nother conversation. Oh, and wow. I think a lot of that has to do with internalized depression and many other things that we can't get into because we're, we have to wrap up our conversation. But one thing I want to tell the audience, those listening who are really interested in the subject and interested in your book is that if you send by email to me, Keith at nursekeith.com, let's say a 100, 200 or 300 word essay or story about empathy in your world or the difference between emotional empathy or cognitive empathy or anything you've experienced in this particular realm, we will pick two winners at random to receive a copy of The War for Kindness, your, your new book, Jamil. So I hope a few people out there will take advantage of that. Write the story. You can give me permission to share the story on my blog or on this podcast if you like, and I'll even share them with Jamil privately so he can read your stories. So I will make sure to uh, to put this word out on social media too so people understand that this will happen, and we really hope to hear from you. So Jamil, this conversation is so incredible. I would love to continue it. And when you have lunch with Eve Ekman today, I'll be there. I'll be catching a flight to San Francisco in a couple minutes. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I could. Um, but if I were fly on the wall, I would want to hear what you have to say. And I would want to say to Eve and you, what if you all come on the show together later this year or next year, and we talk about the solutions when it comes to healthcare institutions? I mean, that would be amazing. Uh, it's it's Liz, by the way. Now, we talked about Eve and Liz, but um, oh, the person Liz. I'm talking about, yeah, oh, yes. Liz is the neonatologist. But oh, right. yeah, um, I'll, I'll bring it up. I mean, again, we're hoping that this Grand Rounds is just the beginning of a lot of conversation around really what can be done in healthcare settings to, again, not increase empathy, right? I, I do not think that empathy is just something that we should just feel more of all the time, but rather to tune it and optimize it in ways that are maximally beneficial to patients and healthy for the people who care for them. Exactly. So, um, yeah, yeah. So let's, uh, let's continue the conversation. Yeah, please tell Liz about that. And I would okay. love to have you both on to talk about it together. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you. Jamil, you are so wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to the Nurse Keith Show. Remember that the show notes for this incredible episode are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 241. Make sure you head over to nursekeith.com to the resources drop down menu where you can find jobs from Reload, from ZipRecruiter. You can even get your ACLS or BLS certification or recertification for free the first time. Head over to nursekeith.com to the resources drop down menu. The Nurse Keith Show is expertly edited and produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Both Rob and Mark keep the wheels turning in the right direction and I am so grateful to them both. 
please tune in again and again as we continue to explore how to powerfully elevate your life and career into your very own personal and professional stratosphere. And remember, if you want to send an essay in to me at Keith at NurseKeith.com, you could win a copy of Jamil's book. So keep tuning in again and again. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Jamil Zaki bidding you adieu from... San Francisco. San Francisco. Okay, Jamil, thank you. And we will catch everyone on the flip side.